0: Welcome everyone to a brand new episode of Tales from the Spinner Rack, I our, our comic book review show. Sadly, this will be the last episode of Tales from the Spinner Rack for 2019, so get in your fill and let's read some comics. And with me today is uh, from Absolute Geek, it's an Absolute Geek night, Absolute it, Geek night. It is, represent. From the Absolute Geek podcast, I'm Matt.
1: And I'm Corbin, the oh, Comic yes.
0: Barbarian. Day, Jay is uh, sick this week, so he couldn't join us. He's had the flu since last Friday. And sadly, we were supposed to have Ray Gun writer and creator, Gregory Schoen, joining us tonight. But uh, due to some unforeseen circumstances at work, he wasn't able to, to make it. So we'll have to get him on sometime uh, next year. But that's alright, Corbin and I are, are ready to hold this down in... Uh, Review some comics for last week. Um, so, what do you uh, you want to start? You want me to start?
1: You know, you want yeah, why not? I'll start. I'll start with one that oh, was cool. you know a, a nice quick little read. I enjoyed it. Um, Detective Comics ten seventeen or one thousand seventeen, um, and I really did. It's it, the, let's go over the creative team first. Tom Taylor was the writer. Or is the writer Fernando Blanco the artist? Um, John Cale on colors. Really good. Quick book. Batman is you know patrolling, doing what he can to protect the town, and there like it cuts to a, a teenager um, who's escaping from Martha Wynn's orphanage, and he's running, he's running away, and you know he's tired, he, he's scared, he busted up his knee, and he's gone. Cuts down to Batman in the cave, and Lucius comes over to him, and he's basically like, "Hey Bruce, do you have a minute? Last night a 15 year old boy ran away. His name is Miguel Flores." And Batman at first is like, okay, trouble. kids run away. I'm, I can't really do too much about that right now. Um, I'll see what I can do. And he's like, okay, but this isn't the first time that a kid is running from this orphanage. By the way, it's also your orphanage. And he's like, okay, well, you know, I'm going to patrol that. While I'm on patrol, I can access the offices and everything. And then Lucius like, but you're also Bruce Wayne. You run the orphanage. You can just go there in person. And so Bruce goes there and he actually gets, um, he goes down there, meets Mr. Morrison, who runs the orphanage there. And he basically brings science equipment and, you know, ice cream to really get to the children. While he does that, he tells uh, Mr. Morrison, hey, Miguel ran away. And he's investigating, he's asking him, do you know why Miguel won't leave? And Mr. Morrison's like, basically, no. You know, some of them, they just come to the realization that they won't have parents come pick them up. And, and that depresses them, yada, yada. Anyways, uh, Bruce goes, okay, fine, whatever. He has a good meeting with him. But then he calls Damien over. And I guess him and Damien, based off the relationship I see off of this one, Damien's been gone a while. I've read a few runs of Detective so far. I've not seen him in a while. Um, Basically, Batman says, listen, I know it's been difficult to reach. I've been, you know, doing patrol and everything. And Damien's like, okay, I understand that. But you're basically now, just now, reconnecting with me to go find some other kid. Like, what's up with that? Batman's like, listen, I just think that, I mean, Damien knows exactly why Batman's saying this. He's like, okay, I get it. You want me to do it because, you know, it's it's something that you can't focus completely on Batman. also, you'd rather have a 15-year-old boy, someone who can probably identify with him better, than a big scary bat. Uh, and I like the line from Damien that basically says, but we're going to talk about these orphanages. It's it, orphanages. It's a bit disconcerting that you have a, a whole building full of potential backup robins. And it's like something that only... Damien would say. Which well, it's alive. true.
0: That's his track record is, is I'm going to take in orphans and make them robins. So it, yeah. yeah, that's his that's his track record. So it, it's understandable that Damien would be, would be a little bit on edge. Just a little bit on edge. I, I thought it was, it was funny. But you're right. Exactly.
1: And I like these. okay. So this is where I have to give major, major credit to Fernando Blanco. There are several kind of panels where – It goes through each day and the degrees. So, Saturday, and it shows Damien talking to a group of um, residents outside the building. 32 degrees Fahrenheit. Monday, shows Batman kicking the can out of some people. 30 degrees Fahrenheit. Thursday, 29. And it shows each one. Batman kicking butt on patrol. um, Damien canvassing the area, trying to talk to anyone who may know where um, Miguel is.
0: It's interesting that they're giving you the temperature.
1: Yeah, it is. I mean, it really puts a sense of place, though, when you can see... Through the um the snow and everything, the pictures are just wonderful. The the illustrations are wonderful because you get to see how okay, wow, like we're racing against time. That threat of inherent danger. You only saw Miguel for like four or five panels as he was running away, but now you see the cold, the snow being more, and you kind of see it. It builds that sense of okay, they have to find Miguel, then they have to find him fast. Anyway, it goes a whole week, um, and then finally and it gets colder. So you know, it's twenty two degrees. 18 degrees, 15 degrees. Finally on Saturday, at 10 degrees, Damien contacts through Batman and says we found him. And he's out on the ice and he's half conscious and he's just a mess. Um and Damien's trying to keep him together, you know. Say, um, you know, you're right, can you hear me? The Batmobile comes to the next panel over, they bring him in, um, and they're taking they take him to the hospital. And again, the just okay, as they're driving in the bat in the Batmobile, it's they're talking to Miguel, who still has some, you know, some life in him to actually say things. So at first he's like, you know, it's cold. I hurt, you know, are you taking me back? I want to go back. And you're like, no, you're fine. We should help. And then he says, I'm sorry. And he says to Batman, you know, my favorite, my favorite superhero is Superman. And then Batman's like, I'll let you on a secret, Miguel. He's my favorite, too. I thought that was like a funny little back and forth, obviously trying to keep him talking and going, but it was a little funny kind of deal. And then um, um, this is where Damien kind of, uh, Miguel, Miguel kind of of lets the next, the next point, point that I guess, I guess in the future running in tact. Where Miguel says that place it wasn't, wasn't finding parents for all the kids. Some, some kids, kids just disappeared. disappeared. I, I wanted to, to escape before I disappeared too, to, and, and I wanted, I wanted to, to stop it from happening. I wanted, I wanted to protect other kids. I wanted, I wanted to find help. help. But you was, he was afraid, afraid that no one would believe him because he's a kid, kid and, and the adults weren't going to believe something as language as that.
0: Not, not to interrupt you, real quick, but that line is super cheap. Like that's something you would see in one of like the stupid like Snicker ads that they put in the, the middle of the books. Like, he's my favorite too.
1: You well, know, the funny thing is,
0: I not it, It's just a stupid. No, okay, it's so it's a, a corny, cheesy
1: line, but I think it shows Batman in a moment of empathy and trying to appeal to this kid. You know what I mean? Because you're right, it's not it's not a great line at all. It's not. I'm not saying that it is. But what I am saying is that if if this kid Miguel at this point, he's a critical condition, he's he's kind of fading in and out. Batman's saying something to kinda of go, you know what, like he's my just a rare concession of like, you know, I like him. I get it. It's definitely like the singer's ad that is literally on the next page. But <laughs> but I thought it was kind of funny, and especially for Batman. To kind of have to deal differently with a child you know what i mean in the line of duty we don't see a lot of that so that, that was interesting to me but all of a sudden miguel goes you know batman's like we'll find the missing kids we're you know um you protect them you did good and miguel goes i saved them and the batman goes you saved them and then miguel passes out and um what happens is david's like oh my god miguel and again great Artist, artistry by Blanco. It shows them rushing Miguel to the hospital, and as it does, you hear the, dee, you can see it, but in my head, I hear the D D D, and you can see the life support line on each of the bottom three panels before it finally flatlines. And, and that to me was like, oh, wow. And then it just cuts to Bruce back working out, back trying to, like, relieve the stress. Like, it just goes, okay, Miguel has died, and moves on. And Lucius goes back to him and says, you know, you had a hard night out, Damien pass out apparently passed out there did you save the city and bruce goes yes and the boy and bruce responds by still hitting the map and so it um bruce goes and tells lucius listen i checked the orphanage records there's no sign of foul play there's thorough follow-up the records are meticulous every detail is there for every child and something in that word causes bruce to go every child and then he gets ready to go back out on patrol and he says, we need to wait Damien to get in the car. And Lucius goes, The car's right there. And he points to the automobile. And um Bruce is like, No, the other car. And so then it cuts to later. Basically, Bruce and, and, and Damien go back to the orphanage. And um basically Bruce tells Damien to wait outside until the police arrive. He goes inside, he goes straight down to Mr. Morrison's office. He says, You keep very good records. And Mr. Morrison's like, uh, thank you. You know, I don't really know what you're trying to do. What, you, what you're kind of meaning by that. And Bruce goes, you have measurements, weights, histories, allergies, injuries, academic and social progress for every child. You can track them for years after they leave. And Mr. Morris like, okay, I'm not sure what you're getting at. And then Bruce goes, only it's not every child. And he points to the picture of that that was already on his wall that shows a bunch of kids, but there's a certain amount of kids that aren't identified. And he says, they disappeared. These children don't exist. And then Mr. Morrison goes, Mr. Wayne, you don't understand. Um, I never wanted to hurt them, but these people, they came with money at first and then threats, and I couldn't stop them. And then Bruce just decks the dude, knocks him out. And that, and that whole page is just wham. And just lays the guy out. Guy's out cold. And it basically goes to um, the police coming in. And this is one thing I like by Damien. Damien kind of sneaks back inside when the police comes in and goes, and where's this Bruce? Um, do you realize you're not wearing a mask, right? And then Bruce goes, is not Batman's name on the building. It's the Wayne name, it's our name. These are Wayne children, they're my responsibility. I failed them. We're gonna track down every single missing child and we're gonna punish every single person who took them. And then Damien goes good. And then Lucius Fox from behind goes very good. And it and it cuts to them just basically two months later making um, naming the Martha Wayne uh, orphanage, the Miguel Flores orphanage. And to me, I mean, listen, it was a nice sweet story. I thought the art was good. Oh, well, not sweet in that sense, but like a nice, neat kind of story. Um,
0: Is that an sense annual? Of... Please tell me it's an annual. No. That's not an annual? No, it's not. Good Lord. Why? Well, I, well, well, well
1: let me finish. I want to uh, get your thoughts on it, though, having already described it. But I thought it was a nice, linear story. I love the artwork by Blanco. Some of the lines were cheesy, but I liked them. I did. I think Tom Taylor did a decent job on it. I would give this story a four out of five. It, w- it was nice. It might leave the door open to continuing on with this storyline or with this arc, if there is one. But you could also just leave this as a standalone adventure for Bruce and just assume that he took care of it. Because this book does jump around. It jumps around a week when they're searching for Miguel. It jumps around later after Miguel's died. It jumps around two months after that when they renamed the orphanage. So that sense of time isn't exactly spelled out. And I think that leaves more room for interpretation there. But... I did like that I could open the story, read it from front to back, and go, okay, I got a full story out of it. So for me, it's a four to five.
0: So, my question is what did Miguel die of?
1: Uh, hypothermia. I mean, he was out there in the cold. Um, he, he just left without a jacket? Well, he had like one jacket on, but as I said, it kept dropping in degrees. Like he just was trying to get away from there before he got killed. As it ends up happening, he ended up dying anyway. But he was gone for a week, and in that time, it went from 32 degrees to 10 degrees like every day. So, who knows? He was, you know, they were trying to track him down. He was going from family to family or trying to find a place to stay or something, but he didn't have a place to stay. Otherwise, you know, he would have been there. So, so what that is, was kind of what huh? What is this book leading to? Well, that's what I'm not sure, and that's why I'm I'm actually okay with giving it the great I did it could lead to, I mean, we just finished Detective, last detective that we read was that year the villain still was Mr. Freeze and Mrs. Freeze and everything there. It stopped there. Fine. Also James Tienan was also writing that. So that that's done. Now it's Tom Taylor. I'm not sure where he started. He could the way he did this book, he could continue with Batman and Damien trying to find missing kids. That could very well be the case. Or he could do, you know, um just another story.
0: It, it just it sounded like an annual to me. It sounded like a very incoherent story that has nothing to do with what's been going on in Batman. Um, is this the kickoff of a new creative team?
1: Well, that's what I'm saying. It's it's Taylor and Blanco for right now. I have to do more research to see if that's the new team moving forward. I knew we were going to have a new writer with Tinian going over to Batman. Yeah. But, okay. I mean, again, I thought it was coherent in the sense of time-wise. No, it wasn't coherent. I will very much say that. But as far as just having a, a quick you know, beginning-to-end story, I think there's something to be said for that. And I think you get that in this. Because the way not, it may not necessarily lead off to something else. It may not be something else to to flesh out that we as readers need to witness. Like there was a problem there at the Martha Wayne orphanage, and now you know Bruce is on it.
0: Just kind of the way you you described that that story has me a little bit worried that if that is the new writing team on Batman, they don't. It feels like it's going to be campy and cheesy now. Especially with the, he's my favorite superhero too. That's, I, like, your, see, that's like your Martha moment.
1: And exactly, I get you. Exactly what you call a weakness is why I call a moment of strength. I like seeing the other side of Batman, especially since we have a Batman title that is already not lacking in grit and darkness and having that sorts of of grounded seriousness throughout every page, almost to the point of being overly dramatic in my opinion. But in a detective comic, you have another side of it. You see another Mm -hmm. side of Batman. You see another side of Bruce. I'm not saying a side you want to see. He's not a side that you're gonna watch all the time. Hey there, chum, talking to Robin, let's go into Batcave and solve some mysteries or whatever. We're not getting that all the time, but-
0: Hey there, old chum, Alfred's dead. Let's go raid his stuff. (laughs)
1: I mean, Let's go you know, you
0: in his room for treasures.
1: I, I'd rather that than fight my father from an alternate timeline over the right to me to be Batman with my cat girlfriend, Dead Butler, and who the heck knows?
0: You, um, know, you
1: know. So Each that's just me.
0: Tomato, tomato.
1: Okay, but I'm giving it a four out of five. I think it was a nice, solid story. It, I'm not looking at it as a sign of things to come. I'll wait till the next entry comes in to really judge that. For me, right now, I'm just grading it on the story for what it was, and I thought it was okay. Can't complain.
0: All right. I mean, I didn't read it, so I will take your word for it. All right. So just, just the, I mean, just the way you explained it. Not saying that you did anything wrong. I'm just saying, like the way that you explained the, the going on in the book. It just, it feels very campy and disinteresting to me. But I get you on that. As long as you liked it, that's that's all that matters. And I'm sure someone else out there's gonna like it. Um. <laughs> so that, I mean, that's kind of why I I bailed on on Detective long ago and. Really, I built on Detective after like all the clay f- during all the clayface stuff, and oh wow, I just never got back into it. But I'm starting between I'm waiting for Tinian to take over, and I'm going to see if we make what changes he makes because I love his writing, and I loved his time on Detective.
1: It was but, very good. I enjoyed it as well.
0: Um, I mean, between what we got last week from Tom King, and you know what that sounds like. I'm starting to lose a little bit of faith in the Batman books. It almost sounds like they need to scale back the amount of Batman and write better stories. Um, But for me, I'm going to start off with my pick of the week. My pick of the week is a comic from, I believe, Boom Studios. Is this Boom or is this Image? Um, Boom Studios from the creative team of Jeremy Hahn and uh, Danny Luckert. And it is called Red Mother Number One. That's a Virgin variant. Ooh, I like it. This book um, blew me away. I absolutely loved it. Red Mother Number One follows the story of this woman who, at the start of the book, her and her, her boyfriend are walking down the street and they're talking about moving into together. When they pass kind of a dark tunnel, and uh, her boyfriend kind of turns and he spots something in the tunnel, and and he's kind of like, "What you know?" She's kind of like, what's going on? What, what was that? And he's like, hold on, let me take a look. And he goes into the tunnel to take see, to see what's going on. And something starts pulling him in. And he starts screaming and asking for her, for her help. As she kind of runs to the entrance to the tunnel, something comes shooting out of the tunnel and hits her in the eye and takes Ooh. out her eye. So as she, um, then it cuts to her waking up in the hospital and she's missing her eye. And she's kind of being investigated by the police. Say, you know, wanting to know. They're like, sorry, we know someone attacked you. We didn't catch anybody. We haven't seen anyone at the, the scene of the crime. But we can't find your boyfriend who you were with. And she keeps asking about him. She, they're like, we have no leads to where he's at. All we know is that you two are together. You were two last seen together on footage. You it, it shows him walking into the tunnel and then he disappears. So she's got she's missing her eye and she's trying to learn how to cope without having both eyes. And then it cuts to her getting a prosthetic eye put in. And after she gets this prosthetic eye put in, she starts having this these headaches. And when she starts having these headaches, both vi- um, her vision turns re- completely red. And she says that when she, she gets these headaches, she feels like she can see out of both eyes again. And Mm-mm. she's kind of getting this headache. So there's kind of like a little bit of, <sighs> of it there where she's getting the headaches. Ooh, I love in the, the work. And as she see- gets these headaches, and, and she starts seeing this demon in the background. And, and through this crowd of people, like she's in the city and this crowd of people's around and she's her a vision goes red and she kind of sees this demon in the background. And as the demon creeps closer to her, she screams and then her vision, uh, her vision adjusts and she's back into the crowd of people. And that's that's where it ends with the picture of the, the monster that oh, wow. she saw. This book is a five out of five for me. The dialogue is fantastic. The art is fantastic. This creative team is fantastic. This was like, I, I was so into this book, I fin- I felt like I finished it in like three minutes um, just because I was reading through it so fast. And I've read it a couple times now because I enjoyed it that much. I can't wait for issue number two. So I give Red Mother number one a five out of five okay perfect i mean the way you a just, perfect score for me so well
1: you know it's funny that's the first perfect score i've heard when i've been on the show so i'm gonna give a brief props to that
0: five out of five
1: that's 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 good coming from you yeah. um and then uh yeah i mean the artwork even that panel i just saw where you know her seeing after the headache it looked very visceral and very it popped it, it really caught my eyes so that's glad. I mean, solid score. Can't argue that at all.
0: Yeah, the I mean the the artwork is very well done. The the writing and the lettering is very well done. This is this definitely gets a, a, a solid five out of five for me. That's awesome. I can't wait for issue number two. All right. This is getting right. this is getting put on
1: the pull list. Put on the pull list. We have to have a little thing when 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 a book that we that we just picked up goes on the pull list. There you go. No. (laughs) All right, so I'm going to run through this one. I did not really enjoy this book very much. Spider-Man 2099, number one, Um, written by the great Nick Spencer, art by Z Carlos, uh, Brian Reber, and Andrew Crossley on Colors. Ah, That's all I got to say. I I don't know. (laughs) Nick Spencer on the Spider-Man runs good, but I just was not a fan of much of any of it it just kind of felt boring and, and kind of droned on and then it was over the artwork was nice um the covers have just been amazing but i mean i like this cover i always love Spider-Man ninety 29 9, visually he just looks really cool but in general you you huh, it's even hard to kind of break it down how this starts uh miguel spiderman 29 9 starts off and he's having bad dreams He's talking to his hologram slash alarm clock slash mentor um, slash answering machine. Um, <laughs> and it's Lila. That's, that's the name. And he's getting these messages, you know, from his doctor, from, from his brother, he's suffering from withdrawal syndromes because of or withdrawal symptoms of this um, drug that he was basically on. And he's also talking about his fractured relationship with his brother how he is living up in the high, the high life of Nueva York while his brother is helping those on the bottom, how he feels bad about it, but he's doing what he has to do, yada, yada. He gets a message, an immersion request from Tyler Stone um, for Alchemex. He goes, he gets transferred up there. He's talking with Tyler Stone. And Tyler says, listen, when I'm done here, I'm saying your dosage. And Miguel's like, listen, send as much as you want. I'm not taking it. And Mr. Stone's like Miguel, don't I like, I'm like i your pusher. No one forced you to subscribe to Rapture, which is what he's on. Um, I didn't slip in your drink. You chose it. You signed up for it because you wanted it to. You wanted the increased cognitive function, the neuroplasticity, um, and it was the right call. So basically, you did this, Miguel. Like, don't blame me that you're addicted to this. I'm gonna give you some more. You know what you have to do. Um, and. Miguel's like, no, you know, not only are you having me hooked up on drugs, but you're putting horrible experiments out there for the bottom people of Nueva York to have to struggle and fight through and it's not right. And long story short, nothing really comes out of it. He gets sent down to the ravage, or he's this is where it backtracks. So he goes down to the ravage. It goes down to the ravage one month ago, where he's looking at these like spider-like exper- experiments that are dead down at the bottom of Nueva York. Um and ones that were, they mutated, they were exposed to the environment. Alchemix is very interested in those genetic mutations, so he's taking samples. He goes down there and he sees this horrible spider-looking alien. And then it cuts to him kind of dissecting it, breaking down the sequence and laying out the applications. The bosses were happy about it, and basically he had other concerns. And, And then it finally goes down to him trying to get Rapture. He was, you know, desperately hooked on the thing. He goes, and this is an interesting thing that Spencer does here. I guess the lower class of Nueva York, there is this like head skull type of device that you can put on your head. I'm going to read just the panel here. It says, um, like I said before, there's no money in Nueva York. Your status and your access to goods and care are tied to your social capital score. So if anyone wants to use that capital, they got to be you. And this like skull type of, I don't know, amulet or whatever kind of gives the poor person, whoever, the form for a short period of time of the person that they're making the business transaction with. So you're trying to buy a legal substance for me. I get to be you for a certain amount of time and you get the substance that I can provide. That way I can use your form, your likeness to go and buy stuff that I normally could not get looking like myself, having access to things I normally would not be experiencing myself. Um, And really, I guess it's kind of run on an honor system because the traders are incentivized to make those kind of mystiques, that's what they're called, those transfers temporary because they know they need the actual person to be there to come down to keep getting um, paid in the first place. But apparently, um, the people that Miguel went to were trying to make it permanent. They were trying to kill the guy. All of a sudden, there's an explosion. Miguel's brother um, is there and saves him. And while this is happening, Miguel is like being saved and I guess blacking out and seeing images of first. The spider mutation that he um I guess helped create or helped work on, and then second, like Spider Man twenty ninety nine, he comes to he's talking to his brother. They have an argument about you know you can help these people, and Miguel's like no I can't I'm sorry I have to go. As Miguel leaves, his brother says oh well you know what um oh that's what Miguel says to his brother I'm sorry little brother it seems like I'm always letting you down, and then his brother, he leaves, his brother goes, damn it, Miguel, why can't you? And he goes, wait a second, maybe you still can. And he looks down and there's that same little skull amulet that he, that Miguel was working with the traders with to trade his likeness. So it cuts off that. So we're left to assume that maybe Miguel's brother will take the amulet to pass to Miguel. And at this point, Matt, if you're as bored as I am just describing it, then I think you understand the feeling I'm getting reading this book. Um, Eventually, Miguel walks off. He's talking about how sad Gabe is. His younger brother is disappointed in him, yada, yada. And then he's seeing these visions and these images of Doom 2099 and other assorted heroes and mutations from the 299 universe. And then all of a sudden, he falls to the ground and this guy goes, well, look at you. And it's an older guy. And the guy like is walking on a cane towards him saying, well, look at you or me, I guess. And I guess we're left to assume that it's an older version of Miguel. And then it says to be continued in 2099 Omega. And honestly, I don't want to continue. I don't understand what this book is trying to do. The only glimpse you get of Spider-Man 2099, which is why I bought the book, is the front cover and one panel aside from that. Um, There is nothing here that was exciting, nothing here that was engaging. I mean, the writing, I guess, was good if I knew what direction it was going. The artwork was decent. But then again, all I'm seeing is Miguel, his family, and normal people up in the street of Nueva York in 2099. So I was just not a fan. It was kind of a waste of time. I would give it like a one out of five. And I've been disappointed with the Spider-Man titles for months now. I've not read a single really good Spider-Man title. There is a spider um, I think it's Web of Spider-Man. No, it's one of the Spider-Man books that I've heard that's been really good. I didn't get my hands on it. I wish I had I've only been grabbing the bad ones. Between Spider-Man 299 and The Amazing Spider-Man, it's just been horrible. So, uh, I'm kind of venting here, but one out of five for that book easily, and Oof. me describing it is just as boring as it was to read it. One out of five. Yeah, I have no sympathy there.
0: One out of five. That's that's a little rough there. I know, I know, but you, you have to read it to see for yourself. So, uh, my next book is going to be an IDW title. It's by the creative team of Joe Hill and Martin Simmons. And it's called uh, The Shit-Talking Homes Mystery, Dying is Easy. Oh, okay. This book is very dark, very mature. Um, It's definitely not for young kids. um, But it is about a retired, kind of disgraced homicide detective turned stand-up comedian Um, his stand-up comedian routine is very dark, and it's about his time as a homicide detective. And he tells very, very dark and insensitive jokes about dead bodies and serial killers, and his time—you know—pulling reference from his time as a serial or as a uh, detective and homicide. And the story revolves. This this first issue is very dialogue-heavy. So if you're into dialogue, it's it's a great. Um, book but because most of it revolves around his, his stand-up routine but he finds out that there's another rival comedian that follows him that's been stealing jokes and after he finishes his routine he goes and joins his, his fellow comedians at the bar and they're all kind of talking about how this other character <coughs> the protagonist, this other character has to die or the antagonist has to die because he's just this, this terrible guy and he, he got on the Jay Leno show and you know he's kind of getting all the fame that these other in the time that these other guys aren't getting, but he's being accused of stealing jokes. So the main character is kind of like, well, I'm gonna confront him about it. So he he gets drunk and he goes and he confronts the guy about it, and the guy's like, so what? He's like, I tell your jokes better than you do, and they're funnier when they come from me too. And uh, the main character is kind of like, that's that's messed up, and they get in a fist fight. So he ends up, like I said, he ends up getting drunk and a fist and punching this dude out. And the next day it, it cuts to him and his, his, um, his apartment and he gets a knock on the door and he gets up to go get in a, to, uh, answer the door and it's <coughs> the police. And they're notifying him that they're investigating him for, uh, they're investigating him. And he was like, what do you mean? This dude called the cops on me for punching him in the face. Like, what a bitch. And they're like, well, no, this isn't because you punched him in the face. It's because he's dead. And that's where it ends. So it's Whoa. it's very dark. It's very, um, like I said, dialogue heavy. It's got a kind of a gritty sense of humor, very dark sense of humor to it. I really enjoyed it. Um, even though it was dialogue heavy, I really enjoyed it. It was a quick read. I'm looking forward to issue two. I'm going to give it a four-point two five out of five four point two five out of five for dying is easy IDW number one good book definitely definitely picking it up if you're looking for something off brand to to kind of read it's definitely Oof. worth checking out
1: okay I'm glad you found some books you've enjoyed this week.
0: Yeah definitely all right all right
1: well that's good I mean I'm gonna go briefly through a book that I also enjoyed this week And I'm not gonna give anything away. There's kind of too many twists in it for me to even really kind of do that. But the book is Doom 2099 number one. And for those who saw that was the cover, love the cover. I've always loved the the illustrations for Doom 2099 in all iterations. I just think it's so cool when it's done right. And I haven't seen many that have been done wrong um, from its inception. So I was really excited to get to this. It was by writer Chip Zdarsky with artist Marco Costello. Uh, and the book is awesome. The book is really, really good. It follows almost, it's, it's, it's why I commented this on Twitter earlier. The people who, the, the creative team here between Zdarsky and Costello who are who made this book either did their research or read the original run. Because there's a lot of parallels between Doom 2099 this run and the original Doom 2099. Where Dr. Doom finds himself in the future, having to adjust. Um, and 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 you know, he's in a world where there's already been Doom bots of his at the time who have been kind of trying to take over. Doom has to go and take over, you know, that world there. He tries originally, gets defeated, comes back with better armor, more upgrades. He's ready and he takes over there. Very much similar to this, where Doom wakes up. You know, he's like, where am I? He gets saved, has a bunch of adventures where he's really trying to um, understand where he's at and the technology he needs and just being the superior mind that he is, but also understand the world that he's in. And he catches on pretty quick. And as he's doing this, he has hallucinations of him talking with Reed, like Reed Richards is in his head. And that dialogue, that back and forth is beautifully presented in these illustrations, um, all from the beginning when, you know, Doom is first coming to after being unconscious and being dragged through the hot desert sun to when he finally gets his armor on. He's already made with the help of an aged tinkerer and really gets himself looking like the Doom that we all know and love. Down to the final, the confrontation that he has with the Doombot, who's like, oh, you must be Doom. I assumed you were another old Doombot or madman, but either way, I'm going to have to take you down. And Doom's like, you know, that's nice, but uh, I'm the real deal. You might as well show me some respect and just give up. Um, the Doombot doesn't get up to have a fight and Doom loses, just like he did in the original run. Um, so he starts back at the beginning, and that's where it ends. And I'm glad because it's going to build in a certain way, much like it did at the beginning. It wasn't like Doom just came to 2999 and took over. He had to work to get there. And I like the way that it's done here. The twist, and I'm not going to give it away, is very, very good. You definitely should read it. The artwork is amazing. And the storyline, the dialogue, it all serves its purpose. Nothing is overused Everything is well-placed. I really enjoyed the reading of this book. I honestly just want to see more Doom 29 like once he gets that upgraded armor, because they, the colors are just amazing. The illustrations are amazing. Costello did some beautiful work here, and Chip Zdarsky's already a legend as far as writing in Marvel. And just the way that he has done it here and really takes you into the mind of Doom as he's going about his method, his process, and understanding where he's at and how he could best take advantage. It's great. Um, I give it a five out of five. Doom
0: 29 oh, I number one. Wow, five out of five, huh? Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Well, before I move on to my next book, I want to do an honorable mention shout out. Sh- 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 shout out for anyone who's in the speculation game. A book that came out last week that is definitely on the spec list um, that should be one that you should check out is Miles Morales, Spider Man number 13. This is the 2099 variant right here, and the reason I'm saying that you should be on the lookout for it and spec-wise is because it is the first appearance of Billy Morales. That's right, Miles Morales has an infant sister, and the emphasis put on her is so great that I feel that she is going to be a a character and a uh, very important figure throughout the Marvel Universe, especially this book moving forward. So I would say um, you could probably still get this at your local comic shops for cover price. I'd say pick it up and definitely worth stashing it away just in case uh, she becomes a bigger figure. It seems like um, and and there's a book that comes out this week. I'm going to recommend you do the same thing with it. It's J.J. Abrams Spider-Man run. It's issue three of that. Look with the way the Spider Verse Spider Verse is going, and and it seems like Spider-Man is the character where all these first appearances matter and they become hot hot hot. So if you're in the spec game, I definitely you can probably still get a couple issues of the JJ Abrams Spider-Man number 1 at your local comic shop. I definitely recommend picking that up as well as Miles Morales 13 just if you're in the spec game for the potential later on down the line of Billy Morales. So just Very something inside. for you to to be on the lookout for if you're kind of in that spec realm as well as reviews. Um, I'm going to move on to... Well, I'm going to save one of my favorite books for the week to, for my next one, but I'm going to move on to uh, Fallen Angels number three. Um, this was a quick read for me too as this book is finally starting to pick up a little bit in my opinion. Um, you see in this book you still get the uh, Psylocke having her whole identity crisis thing but um, you, it, it kicks off with them fighting this giant robot And she's, Psylocke's telling X-23, look, you know, if we're going to survive here, you've got to let loose. You've got to let go. Nothing you can do is going to shock me. You don't need to hold back from me. Go wild. Let me see what you have. Show me your stuff. And she pretty much does. And as she's going crazy, Cable lunges at this thing and it starts shooting at this giant robot. And he kind of gets blasted away um, from them as X-23 and Psylocke are fighting this giant robot and X-23 ends up bringing it down and destroying it as they do Cable kind of gets abducted by a um, by this weird entity and they're, they're like well we need to go look for him and uh, yeah, X-23 and um, Psylocke are kind of like where's Cable where did he go and she's like he got blasted away and she's like well we need to go after this robot as the robot was trying to make it escape and X-23 is like, no, we need to find Cable. And Psylocke's like, no, Cable's a warrior. He'll want us to finish the mission. He knows what's at stake. We have to go after him. And then it cuts to a picture of Cable, and he's kind of like strapped to this table. And in walks this very... I want to almost look... He almost looks like a mechanized um, Taskmaster. I thought for, for a minute it was Taskmaster. Um, and so... It says that. Um, let's see here, because this is. Yeah, it says. Um, the end of technology, the end of mutants, the end of humanity, and the end of different uh, difference itself, and it ends with a picture right here. That's the final oh, page. Wow. It's sick. like a mechanized like skeleton with all these weapons and. It, I, at first, I thought it was like maybe like a Taskmaster clone or a mechanized Taskmaster, but that's where it ends. Um, good book. This book finally picked up a little bit for me. It was nice finally getting to see this team of uh, X23, uh, Psylocke, and Cable in action. Uh, I mean, other than fighting the robot, I'm going to give it a 3 5. I like the story, I like the action, but it didn't really progress. As much as it could, because the majority of this was X twenty three and Psylocke fighting this robot, and it kind of didn't take a turn till the end. So hopefully, issue four will will do more to progress the story. So I'm gonna go three five on on Fallen Angels.
1: Okay, pretty decent, pretty decent. I feel like I've either a given great reviews or b horrible reviews, and for the last book I read this week is another horrible review, and I feel really bad doing it, but. I have to, especially since I love this series so much and it feels it was kind of a letdown. It is Tales from the Dark Multiverse number one for the Teen Titans, The Judas Contract. <laughs> Whew, boy, this was a disappointment. Um, I mean, it's not even really a plot to kind of go into. Um, just imagine that Tara Markov, Tara Markov, Tara, from The Judas Contract uh, classic 1980s Teen Titans story went crazier earlier and killed everyone. And you have the plot for this book. Um, I didn't like the fact that if you look at all the other Tales from the Dark multiverse books, everyone kind of hinges on this crucial point in time where a sad miscalculation is made, one turn is changed that slightly but irrevocably changes the course of the rest of the events in the book. Um, This one wasn't even that. It was really like more of a miscommunication of anything. And I guess I could say this because not even a big deal. Uh, you have, they all are meeting up, they've had their battle. Kid Flash is leaving the Titans as he did. Big Grayson is saying, listen, I'm no longer Rod, I'm still gonna be in the team, but I have to figure out what I am. Same thing. And and oh forget, before I rush about how disappointed I was, I didn't even go over the creative team. The writers were Kyle Higgins and Matt Groom, and the artwork was done by Tom Rainey and Hi
0: Fi on the colors. Basically. That's that's shocking since Higgins is you know, he's a, a very good writer.
1: Yeah, in between Rainy and Hi-Fi, the colors and illustrations look nice, especially the classic shot-for-shot shot panels that were taken directly from that 80s Marv Wolf and george Perez story. I mean, it looked amazing, beautifully rendered. you got to feel the whole 80s in it, and I really enjoyed that. Unfortunately, there's was a little else to enjoy. Um, Tara is, she had a conversation with Dick Grayson, who notices that she seems to be kind of distracted, and he says, listen, you know, make your own path. You know what I mean? Don't You don't have to live in, in Br- Brionne's shadow. You know, um, and he's like, Do you know, Geoforce, right? And she's like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's that's what I meant. No, she meant, oh, I don't have to live because, of course, Dick didn't know this. I don't have to live in Deathstroke's shadow. Um, Deathstroke's there. She goes down to him. And mind you, I-, I don't like, I never have liked the way that, aside from a couple stories, Tara's been presented Or Tara, I'm sorry, I keep saying Tara. It's been presented um, because, you know, the optics of that whole situation being a minor with Deathstroke and having that relationship and just being all evil and not having a sympathetic side and just, oh, she's bad because she's bad. When, you know, you could do a whole bunch of deep thinking to this and go so many different layers as to why she's that way or character development or anything there. Fine. I don't like the, oh, she's evil for the sake of just being evil when she's been in a lot of situations that, like, okay, you could see why. This could lend this way for her, why she would act that way in retaliation to being used and abused and whatnot. Anyways, they kind of follow that same line where she's just evil. Um, and she goes to Deathstroke and says, Listen, uh, I don't understand why you are so weak and you talk about being a soldier and everything, but all I see is picture of your family around and you have this old guy, um, Wintergreen, who's a ger- geriatric soldier and you still have him around. And, you know, Deathstroke's like, There's nothing soft about rewarding the loyalty of good soldiers, yada, yada. And, and then he slaps her. He's like, I give you a reprimand for, for getting your place, for not respecting your superior. And show the panel where he's looking at her mad. And you can see Tara, like, shocked and then angry. And then she basically rips apart the entire, um, like, cabin that they're in. And then totally just offs Deathstroke in just gruesome fashion. Um, and then uh, apparently kills Wintergreen after forcing Wintergreen to. Give her the same operation that was given to Deathstroke, so she gets that in addition to her own powers. And she becomes Gaia, I think that's how you say it. She becomes sure. Gaya? Gaia, 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 anyway. Gaia, and then from that point on, she kills all the titans in a panel that is so blink and you miss it. They're all dead. I read it and I went, Oh, they're not, they're not dead. It gives a moment to Firestar, and that's about it. She's all of them are dead um except for Dick Grayson and obviously Kid Flash cuz they were gone. Uh, she goes to find Kid Flash and again, artwork in spots were amazing. That whole confrontation with him escaping and running away to go with um to like disappear in the crowd of I think it was the marathon they had was amazing and it was rip panel for panel. Terrifying him She's about to kill him. All of a sudden, Kid Flash comes and saves him, and he has Robin's uniform, and they get dressed, and they do one last Titans together type of thing. And it's a really cool um, panel as they're both approaching uh, Tara to kind of take her down. Um, unfortunately, they lose. They die. But they knew they were going to die because they are really just buying time for the biggest person to take down uh, Tara, and that was Superman. Superman comes down. They have this big fight. But Terra is able to turn the rock that she is around into kryptonite. And she's also strong thanks to having Deathstroke's enhanced abilities to be able to withstand Superman's attacks. She basically blows up. And kid you not, look at this scene if you can see it. If not, check out the book. That is the entire city they're in. She blows it up. Everything gone, destroyed, destruction, lava and magma everywhere. And Superman goes, oh, God, Terra, the whole city, what did you do? And he's fighting her. And then Tara turns the rock around into kryptonite to basically weaken Superman. And then she says, listen, you can't stop me. Nobody can stop me. I'm causing these attacks all over. And it shows a panel of Wonder Woman trying to stop it in Washington. And um, Force and Batman and the Outsiders trying to stop it in London. And Green Lantern trying to stop it in Tokyo. And she's like, I'm destroying everything. And then Superman's like, this won't make you happy. And she's, again, just because poor character development, Tara's like I don't care if I'm happy. I feel alive. I can do what I want. And all of a sudden, you have this like sad moment of like, what type of life is that? And Beast Boy comes flying in as a bird, and he's like an injured bird. He morphs into a guy, you know, morphs back into Beast Boy, and he's been just horribly damaged. His jaws hanging, faces melted, all sorts of things.
0: It was like a like, listen. He looks like he does a family Joker. He does. Exactly. Like, how could you do
1: this? We gave you a home. We trusted you. I cared for you. And she's like, oh, you cared for me. Yada, yada. Oh, see, I cared for you too. About as much as a god can care for an ant. And then she just kills him. And then basically puts a last little stab in Superman, kills him too. And then at the end of it just shows um, <laughs> it just shows um, Tempest figuring out looking at the world that belongs to Gaia. And it's just a whole bunch of fire as she's riding on this like rock fire dragon and that's in the, the book the book was freaking hot garbage horribly done i I love the artwork and I didn't like anything else the storyline was basically what if we just made Tara go crazy earlier also with that much more power and just killed everyone and it just didn't do anything for me I didn't feel sympathetic. Every other book, there was at least a moment for Batman in Nightfall, for Lois Lane in Superman, for Blue Beetle in Infinite Crisis, um, a missing one. Um, oh, I mean, even uh, Sinestro in uh, Blackest Night, there was always that one character where it hinged for a moment that you would at least see where they were coming from and then see the descent into whatever the book became. And that is not what happened in Teen Titans, of Judas Contract. Not at all. I would say good if you like the artwork. I'm going to give it that. It was very nice. I I did like some of the old 80s classic feel. And it felt like I was reading an older book from that time. And and that's great. And the panel for panel shots that were taken were also amazing. But aside from that, the plot just, it it wasn't well thought out. And when you had such a strong run of books in this series, it just sucks. Like If if this is all put in a trade paperback, I'll probably still buy it. But that's going to be like the weakest entry by far. Um, it's not even close. I mean, Blackest Night was up. Not Blackest Night. Infinite Cry- Blackest Night was up there for me, but I liked all of them. Blackest Night would have just been bad because I liked it the least of the others. But I love those books. But with Teen Titans, the Judas Contract, ah, I, I no.
0: <laughs> so what's your score? One out of five. Oh boy, that's that's not bad. You weren't here last week when I gave uh, last issue of Batman like a point five.
1: I think I I rewatched. It. Yeah, that was something. <laughs>
0: give it terrible uh before i review my last book i want to give another shout out and speculation spec alert uh to a milestone book that came out last week and that is idw Teenage mutant the teenage mutant ninja turtles issue 100 this is a power-packed issue now i have to admit full disclosure i am probably about 10 to 15 issues behind on turtles uh, it's one of those books I've collected but not read. Um, but of course I had to get issue 100. Uh, issue 100 is big on the spec right now as it is the return of Rokusaki, or the return of Shredder, and also the death that's right, spoiler alert the death of Splinter, aka Hamato Yoshi and it shows it right spoiler alert in three, two, one. There's Shredder carrying Splinter's oh dead body. Gosh. This book feels big for a number of reasons, not just because it's the return of the Shredder and not just because it's the death of Splinter, but because of the way they did it. It feels like it is the in comics, deaths never stick. So they kill somebody off, and years later, they bring him back. Wolverine they killed off, and they brought him back a year later. Uh, I know, I think the only one that's technically stuck and I might not even be still around is Electra. I know Electra has been dead and stuck for a while. I'm not sure if they brought her back yet. Um, But I know Jean Grey's death sticked for a while, but now she's been killed and brought back. Um, But uh, yeah, Um, but this feels very definitive. And I say that because the final panel, if you all know the, the, the story of Turtles or the history of Turtles, Uh, The reason Orokosaki and Humatayoshi, Yoshi, Splinter, and Shredder have beef is because when they were in Japan, they loved the same woman. And um, Humato Yoshi went out and married her, and in his rage, Orokosaki killed his his wife and Yoshi came home to find him sitting over her dead body, and that's why he fled to America and got uh, with the, um, the ooze and turned into Splinter and raised the turtles. So the very last issue of the book, it shows him in the spirit realm being reunited with her on the very last panel right here. And then right there, it's a picture of them kissing and it says Finn at the bottom. So it feels like it's a very definitive end to the um, character of Splinter. And we're, I mean, with with issue 101, we're, we're moving to uncharted territory. We're about to see what the turtles are like and how they operate in a world where Splinter is no longer there to guide them. So, it's, it's uncharted territory. So, uh, IDW's Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles number 100. It's a monumental 100th issue. Definitely worth picking up. You can probably still find a copy um, at your local comic book shop. But it'll be interesting, definitely, to see where this book and how the Turtles move forward without their, their father and master and <coughs> just all-around um, idol no longer there. So... Very good, wow. Definitely worth picking up. But, moving on to my final book of the week, in a book that has moved officially into my first place, as far as the X-Men books go. That's X-Force, number three. Um, Murat, look, last week, if you listened to the show last week, you heard me say that every X-Book that came out last week was a disappointment to me. And this week is quite the opposite. I liked, um, I liked Fallen Angels, number three. And I loved X-Force number three. Uh, X-Force seems to be the the driving force between all the X-Men stories right now, which is weird because you would think it would be uh, the main X-Men story, but after that whole geriatric crap last week, um, that's not the case. Uh, This book picks up where um, Wolverine and Kid Omega are in the mutant facility where they find Domino in a Containment unit and they found out that the the mutant the assassins that killed Charles Xavier got into Krakoa by chopping off pieces of um, Domino and forming them to her body and forming it to their body So they're using pieces of mutants to get into Krakoa and you see um, Kid Omega and Wolverine kind of just it's just them breaking her out of the container Um, as they do this giant, like, skeleton thing that looks like it's straight out of uh, uh, Attack on Titan, Mm. attacks them, and they can't fight back. Kid Omega can't fight back because he's got the the power dampener. There's power dampeners around, and he can't use his mutant's abilities. And as they're running, um, Domino kind of, as she's clinging to life, speaks up and says, Logan, I've got a power dampener on my deck. Remove it. And if you know Domino, her abilities are luck. So Wolverine removes it. And as he does, they get the luck to where the power dampeners in the, the um, facility fail. And Kid Omega can finally use his powers. And he forms a giant rocket launcher and blows this massive thing away. Um, But then it cuts to Krakoa and Jean Grey is standing over the pod to resurrect Charles Xavier now here's my biggest issue with these X books and I said it when House and Powers were coming out it feels like death in these books have absolutely no consequence because Xavier was dead, Xavier was dead, the whole reason Krakoa came about the leader of Krakoa was dead and it felt like it had a power behind it and it was like oh man like this has got something to it well, now they just brought him back and they rebirthed him through their abilities in Krakoa to in the pods through gold balls and the, the gene splicing of Mr. Sinister. They bring back Charles Xavier and kind of mutant human population shows up at the greats of Krakoa and they're, they're sitting there, you know, screaming about how, uh, you know, they want to know what's going on with Xavier. Why haven't they seen Xavier? What's what's going on? And Magneto's kind of trying to to um, calm him down. And Black Tom is there, kind of instigating everything, and uh, then Charles Xavier walks out of the portal, and he's like, "I assure you, you know, basically, I assure you that the rumor of my demise has been greatly exaggerated." And he's standing there, and he's he's like, "Well, we'll deal with this um, in our own manner." And then it cuts to one of the assassins that killed him, that um, they was that was clinging to life because Wolverine pretty much butchered everyone else that was clinging to life, and as he's sitting there clinging to life, uh, a force comes out of the, you see someone come out of the shadows and put a hand over his face and suffocated him, finally finishing him off. Um, As he's finished off, uh, Kid Omega kind of uses his abilities to, to create a new eye and new limbs for Domino till they can get back to Kakoa. So she can kind of work on her own and meanwhile, in Krakoa, they have, they're having a meeting of, a, of the secret council to talk about kind of what's going on. And Dominoes advises them of this man with a peacock tattoo. So we're getting a new, a new villain in the X-Men universe. And you haven't seen him yet. He runs an organization that they're calling Xeno. But he's a man with a peacock tattoo on his arm there, if you can see it. Um, so basically, the whole issue the whole thing with, with X-Force is when they started Krakoa, the Krakoa was supposed to be a safe haven for mutants only mutants were supposed to be able to come in and leave um, there was never they were never no humans or threats were supposed to come to mutants on Krakoa well obviously that's not the case because this organization is using mutants and in in mutant body parts to allow them to travel to Krakoa and they attacked and killed Charles Xavier on Krakoan soil so this, the secret council is meeting about what to do about the fact that people can now infiltrate Kakoa with being as they're being detected as mutants because they're using mutant body parts to go undetected. So that's why in the first issue, when the, they showed up, it registered as Domino was coming through the portal, and it wasn't Domino, it was these assassins. I give X-Force a 4.75 out of 5 this book has been fantastic. Like I said, it's, it's leading the charge for me in the X books. I can't wait for issue four. Um, and like I said, it's, it seems to be the driving story around, um, this, this whole X-Men series right now. And so Charles Xavier says, usually you're used to seeing him. One of the thing you see, he's hearing him say to me, my X-Men. Well, in this issue, he says to me, my X-Force. So he's putting together a new X-Force team to do in lurk in the shadows to do kind of black ops and undercover what you know the the dirty work while he tries to save face and and say that there's nothing wrong in Krakoa nobody can attack Krakoa there's no there's no you know people coming into Krakoa to try and calm you know put a a calm face on while his X-Force does the dirty work and the black ops works behind the scenes so 4.75 on X Force. It was a fantastic read this week. Um, I'm very, very, very impressed with all the books I read this week. Not a bad book in the bunch. Um, Again, some were weaker than others, but I'm telling you, my two, my two uh, random picks on IDW's "Dying is Easy" and uh, I can't remember the other name. The fucking Red, uh, Red Mother were absolutely fantastic, and I was pleasantly surprised. Not a, unfortunately, I didn't have the same uh poor week that you did, Corbin.
1: <laughs> yeah, there was a lot of variance to my books. I'm not gonna lie. I mean, a lot of variance. You had the good ones. I like Detective Comics 1017. I thought it was okay. I enjoyed Doom 299 Number One. That was my clear head and shoulders above best book of the week. One of the two weaker ones was Spider Man 299 Number One. And, of course, Tales from the Dark Multiverse, the Judas Contract, not pleasant at all. So, you know, when it was good, it was good. And when it was bad, it was ugly. And That's all I got to say about that.
0: So, yeah, that that is our review this week. Um, guys, if you're reading any of these books that we reviewed this week and you feel the same way or you feel differently about a book we read or there's something you're reading that you feel like that we need to pick up and get, a, get in on and you want to hear our opinion on, please leave a comment down below. Hit us up in the chat. Um, send us a pic, uh, a message on the Absolute Geek Facebook page. Whatever you got to do to let us know to say, hey, I read this book and I disagree or agree. Or, hey, you need to be checking this book out. Um, I know Jay, Jay's reading a lot of different books than we are. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it, was, it was a weird week because when Corbin and I sat down, we were like, man, neither one of us have a single of the same book. Now, I know you were reading the X titles. Did you bail on all the X titles? Yeah, I kind of did. I'm telling you, man, X-Force and Marauders is worth reading. It is. X-Force and Marauders definitely are worth it. Um, I'm going to give X-Men a couple more issues. I've already bailed on um, New Mutants. I don't plan on going back. Fallen Angels, I'm going to give it issue 3. I'm going to give it to issue 5. If it hasn't, at least progressed satisfactory to me and by issue 5 I'll probably bail on that but right now I think the books in the X series you gotta pay attention to are X-Force and Marauders
1: alright I'll do it uh, Hey, you, you talk to me back on it cause uh, after a couple of Bad New Mutants and one or two but you know I was like eh forget it <laughs>
0: honestly X-Force is the only book in the X-Men run that I have not yet been like there's been a bad issue there, there's not been a bad issue of X-Force X Force seems to be the standalone solid. That's kind of why I've readjusted my my rankings and I put it ahead of Marauders now, just because last week's issues of Marauders was was kind of a letdown. Mm. And my biggest issue with these X books is there seems to be a theme, like, or at least last week there was. So, like every book that came out was focused on Sebastian Shaw, and it seems to be it seems to be a theme. Like they just focus on one character, and it runs across that whole like. Arc of books that comes out that month and or that week, and it's just like, come on, give me the main story already. I don't, I don't want this this sidey stuff with Sebastian Shaw. I don't care. Like you, you left us in this cliffhanger of Charles Xavier being killed. What's going on with that? You left us in the cliffhanger with, with Domino them finding Domino all torn apart in a tube. What's up with that? So, it's nice that X Force isn't doing that, and they they're continuing on with the, the story. And the cover and artwork is is beautiful. Um, I can't uh I can't say enough about this book. It's fantastic.
1: There you go. Saw review right there.
0: For sure. Um but guys, I want to thank everyone for for hanging out with us tonight. I know it was a quick episode, still still a little over an hour. Um but this again is our final show for 2019 uh 2020. We will be back and ready to go. Um maybe we are maybe we'll have a a, a year in review or a top t- 2019 top ten list of of books to uh, to go over, but um, but yeah, guys. So for this for this final episode, it's been it's been a, I know it's only episode five, but it's been a lot of fun reviewing comics again, especially with Corbin and Jay. Uh, I apologize that we, we couldn't get Gregory Schoen from Ray Gun on. We're going to get him on as soon as we can. Uh, things happen. I know Jay wished he could have been here, but he's sick with the flu. So, you know, things happen. But I just want to remind everyone real quick before we sign off. This Friday night, uh, 730 on YouTube, the Absolute Geek Podcast is doing our annual Chris Holiday episode. Um, we have a phone number on the Facebook page. You can check out, um, go there. And actually I can flash it or I can give it to you here too in just a second. It is 623-396-6143. That's 623-396-6143. If if you listen to Absolute Geek Podcast, me and Corbin are there every Friday, make sure to call that number by 3 p.m. on Friday. Leave us a voicemail about your favorite moment from the past year of Absolute Geek. And we're going to play it along with that clip on the air live and discuss it. And a holiday episode is always one of my favorites. It's always a fantastic time, so definitely check that out. Um, But yeah, for this week's episode of Tales from the... Well, before I sign off, do you have anything else you want to say, Corbin?
1: Hey, nothing else, man. I'm excited for the holiday episode. Thanks for catching on and uh, reading these books. You know what? Like it's only five episodes for me, what, three or four, but it's been a good ride and plenty more to come.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So for this episode of Tales from the Spinner Rack, I'm Matt... And I'm Corbin. Saying happy holidays, everyone. Merry Christmas. Have a happy and safe new year. And we'll see you guys in 2020.